right, well, we're going to be back in James this week, chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 12 today. So grab your Bibles and turn to the letter of James in your New Testament. If you are here and don't have a Bible, we would love to provide you with one. Underneath the seat down the middle aisle are a few Bibles that you could grab. Have the person beside you go ahead and toss it down to you. And if you're going to grab that Bible, it's going to be around 560-something. That should get you close to the letter of James to the church, and more importantly, to chapter 3. We're going to read these verses out loud together. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let's read together. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this weekend before Thanksgiving, and, uh, and we say thanks. Thank you to you for life, for the health in our bodies, for breath in our lungs, for the gathering of your church Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to pause and to, uh, to, to contemplate what your word says to us. And, uh, and Lord, this is a strong word from, uh, from Jesus, little brother James, uh, to the church. And I pray that uh, you would help me to uh, convey the conviction that James has in regards to our tongues and how that's connected to our faith. But more so, Lord, that, that you would extend grace to us because we get this wrong all the time. And uh, we pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen and amen. So if you're here with us for the first time, we are in a, a series in, the, in this New Testament letter um, by Jesus' little brother, uh, James. And James is uh, really is, is exhorting us about our faith. James, as I like to summarize, is telling us that, that we, need to have, uh, we need to be people that live what we believe. James is writing to... Jewish Christians who have been dispersed because of persecution, and he's encouraging them that the appropriate way, even under persecution, to live a right life as a Christian 
is to, to have an active faith, for it to be able to be seen uh, that you are a, a person of God by the things that you do and how you live. And really, uh, over the course of the, the two chapters that we've read so far, James is, is telling us and really trying to show us the difference between someone that just professes to have faith and someone who possesses it. And there's, there's a, that's not a nuance. There's a, there's a real difference between someone that professes faith and someone who actually possesses it. And so just a little review. In chapter 1, James taught us that trials and testing produce endurance. And as we persevere, even through hostile environments, it's going to testify to our faith. In chapter 2, James tells us that faith doesn't show partiality. Instead, it extends mercy to the poor. He goes on to exhort us that there's a difference between true faith and false faith. A false faith shows no compassion. A false faith is a bunch of stuff that we do that masquerades as faith. James goes on to say that true faith, on the other hand, is, is validated, or it's a better word, it's proven by the things that we do. Our good works demonstrate that we have faith, that we actually possess what we profess. And as we cross over into chapter 3 today, James is going to connect our mouths, the, the words that we say, our speech, to, um, to having faith, to having true faith. Uh, last week, as I summarized uh, what James was saying at the end of chapter 2, I said that James was asking us this, this particular question. How do you know if you're really a, uh, a Christian? This week, he's asking us a follow-on question. He's asking us, how do you know if you're really mature? That is, a mature, uh, a mature Christian. And that, that really is a, an appropriate question to ask. Because a lot of times, um, we, can, we can personally uh, think and do a lot of things that we think are mature. A lot of times, we can see things in people that we would say are mature, but we have to ask questions. I mean, is that, is that really what maturity is? A lot of times, we think that Bible knowledge, uh, how many Bible verses you can quote, I mean, how, how much uh, doctrine you might be able to recite, how many Bible stories you can articulate, but I mean, is that really, is that really maturity? There's, there's, there's kids in Awana, they can like quote Bible verses like that, right? Um, there's kids back in our kids' ministry that know Bible stories, but is that true Christian maturity? A lot of times we can argue that it's not just how much you know, it's, it's what you do as in a religious activity. I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm doing all kinds of things immersed in the life of the church. But, I mean, the question, is that, is that maturity? Is that Christian maturity? And James is pretty direct in this text. In fact, he, um, James gives us um, pretty words, but he's got a bat in his hand, and he's like, going to like pop us as he's talking about this thing about our tongues and what it, what it lends to our faith. And James, um, he basically says no. I mean, no. He's conveying that uh, we can do a lot of external stuff, but all the external things that we do that may pretend to be, pretend to be faith aren't necessarily faith nor Christian maturity. Uh, James is saying it's our tongue. It's our words that sometimes prohibits us from being the mature person that we should be. Uh, our character is revealed by our, our words. And here's the truth. We really shouldn't be surprised that James is saying this because this is the, this is the testimony of, of Scripture. Look at Proverbs 18, uh, 
actually, um, look at Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 26. Jesus says the same thing. Um, what I, I was thinking of Proverbs. We went through, we went through a series, three months in, in Proverbs, and one of the subjects that we touched upon was the idea of, of our speech, that there's a proper way to, uh, to be wise with your speech, but also there's a way that we can be foolish with the things that we say. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 12. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they say, that they speak. And that's when we say, ouch. I mean, Jesus is stepping on our toes here. Jesus is going to hold us accountable for those things that we say. He's, he's saying our words are tied to our character. More so, our, our words reveal our character. And we're going to be held accountable before God. I mean, that just makes me want to shut up, right? I mean, I, I, I should just probably not talk at all because I say things I shouldn't all the time. And I know you do, too, because I talk to you. This should be kind of scary for all of us, but especially for people like me. Look at verse 1. Here's what James says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. One of the things that shocks me about the church is that oftentimes people get hurt, but the people that people in the church get hurt by are usually the ones that are speaking and, and leading. And unfortunately, that shouldn't be so. It's the case, but it shouldn't be so. A lot of times we get hurt by our actions or people get hurt by the actions of others. But generally, I mean, almost all the time, it's, it's by the words that we say. And that's why James says not many of you should become teachers. And so if you're a leader in the church, here's what this text is telling you. Especially if those of you that are called to lead by teaching, you're accountable for your words. You have a, a higher standard. And as James says in the text, you're going to be judged more strictly than other people. And he's not kidding with that. Now, there's this principle in scripture, the more you know, the more you're going to be held accountable. Y'all believe that? It's true, whether you believe it or not. And so, so for all of us in this room, it's dangerous for you to pick up your Bible and to accumulate knowledge and to use that knowledge as wisdom in how you lead your life. It's dangerous for you, especially if you use that knowledge and wisdom to teach other people because you're going to be held responsible a higher standard uh, than, than a person that doesn't do that in regards to what you teach. God's going to hold you accountable for what you know, especially and even more so if you teach. And so right here in our church, if you're a community group leader, um, even if you're facilitating a community group, um, even our, our, our you know, able-bodied servants back there helping disciple your kids back in kids' ministry, we are held accountable for those things that we teach others. God is going to, I mean, he looks at that and, uh, and holds us to a high, holy calling to which we will be held accountable. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. Some of you have been hurt. I mean, you got church hurt, and that church hurt originates from things that came out of the pulpit or people that were in leadership that said something to you. Maybe they... Uh, uh, maybe it was prosperity gospel that just steered you down the wrong way. Perhaps it was heresy or just like somebody jacked you up with a doctrine that you believe that happened, that happened to be wrong and, 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 and you fell prey to that. I would tell you that the implication of what James says here in verse 1 is that 
spiritual leaders, particularly those of us who teach, are going to be held accountable for their words. And you may not see them being held accountable in your lifetime, but it's going to happen. Right? God sees it, he knows it, and he's going to adjudicate at some point. So here's what's going on in this text. Apparently, the, there was this thing going on in the churches to which James was writing, and, and they were thinking, all right, if somebody's going to stand in front of us and teach us, then there's got to be some spiritual maturity there. It was like, okay, if they're teaching, it equals maturity. And James was saying, mm, no, that's not the case. That's not exactly what's going on. That's not maturity. It's, it's not what you're teaching when you're in front of people that reveals your maturity. It's what you're saying to people behind the scenes. Someone once said, I don't know who said this, but this is what they said. If you want to know, if you want to get to know someone, argue with them. Ain't that a true? Y'all, y'all have never been in an argument and said something that you wanted to say, and you, I mean, you're just like, I'm going to say this, and I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to say it. That happens in an argument all the time. When we're in an argument, the heat of the moment, what's in our heart comes out. It, it just does. It just pours out. And it's not that it wasn't there. It was there all the time. We were just stifling it through other things, behavior modification and all those things. So James is saying, if you can master your words, not just when you're teaching, but when you're living, that's actually maturity. Here's the direction James is going on in the rest of our text. He, uh, he's saying this, and this is worth you remembering, because if you can remember this, when you get in an argument, when you want to say the thing that you, I mean, when you're on the inside and saying, I got to say this, but you know you shouldn't, this is what you should remember. A controlled tongue equals a surrendered heart. A controlled tongue equals a surrendered heart. I've said this, I've told you all this, uh, this story a couple times. It's, it's a short story. So my wife and I were teaching a marriage small group in North Carolina. It was one that we taught over and over because we loved it. It was a Paul Tripp um, um, study. And it was on marriage. And uh, the, the study had us do an exercise. And the ex- I can't remember what chapter it was on or what it was about. But we came upon this question, a list of 17 questions, one question out of the 17. And the question was, do you edit your words when you speak? And so my wife answered. We were, we were going back and forth, going through the list, answering the questions to each other. That was the exercise. And, and she immediately says, yes, I always edit my words. I don't say exactly what I'm thinking. And then it was my turn to answer. And I was like, well, I don't edit my words. You're my wife. Why wouldn't I just tell you everything I think? I mean, why would I, why would I just tell you like, like the, raw, the raw details of everything I'm thinking? And she said, you know, because that's not right. I mean, do, do you, I mean you, can, you can say things that hurt people if you say exactly what you think. And I think that's, this, is what, this is a good point. Um, my wife, although she didn't say it this way, had surrendered her words, you know, to God in that she would edit what she was really thinking, even in regards to me, because sometimes our words hurt. Oftentimes our words hurt, whereas I hadn't gotten that lesson. I, I, honestly, I didn't have a surrendered heart. I'm still working on it, to be truthful. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Words are powerful. That's what James is saying. Anybody that has mastered their tongue, and there is no one that has, not even you in this room, but if there was such a thing, then if you can master your tongue, you have actually mastered your whole being. You've mastered all of your, yourself. 
But here's the thing, um, for, for all of us, our tongues are an outgrowth of our character. And, and oftentimes our mouths betray who we are and they lead to our undoing. Um, I was going to say this for the end, but I'm going to give it to you now because I, don't, I, I want this to, I want this to um, be a lasting application. This is something you can do during, during this week uh, of, of Thanksgiving. And particularly, it's going to help you on Thanksgiving Day when you're around friends and family and want to talk politics. We want to talk about Donald Trump and his administration. So I got a tongue, I got a tongue assignment. This is the application of our sermon. And notice, we haven't even, I haven't even gotten, I haven't even talked about the verses yet. All right? But this is going to help you. Um, there are three kinds of people in this room right now. There are those of you that talk too much. You just say, too, you, got, you got too many words in you. There are those of you that don't talk enough. And there's like 1.5 people in here <laughs> that, uh, that are balanced, that actually say, that say, you know, they say the appropriate thing at the appropriate time, and they know how to re- re- restrain themselves, to not say something when they should not. There's only a, there's like one and a half of you in this room that are like that. And so here's the exercise that I want you to do, and I want you to do it on Thanksgiving, because you, I mean, you can't do this when you're sleeping. You can't do it in a shower by yourself. You've got to have people with you that could actually test you in, in this regard. So I'm going to name, I'm going to list several things that you have to do. And here's the trick. You got to do them all at the same time. All at the same time. Here's the first one. Don't grumble or, or uh, don't complain or grumble or boast about anything. You can't, y'all, can y'all do that? Come on. Here's the second one. Don't gossip. Don't repeat some bad thing that somebody said about another person. Don't share it as a prayer request at Bible study or community group. Don't be subtle with it. You can't do any of that. Don't say, I'm telling you this so you can pray about it with me. All right? Don't gossip. Thirdly, don't throw anybody under the bus. You can't. Don't do it. I threw, I threw Blake under the bus during announcements, and I got to apologize for that. Fourthly, this is, this is going to be the hardest one for you. This is really hard. Don't defend yourself or excuse yourself. I mean, this is, my, this is like my gut reaction. I'm a good defender. I defended myself a couple of times yesterday. Here's, here's, here's an addition to that. Don't defend yourself even if the other person is right. Try that one. All right, so that's for, those first four were all don'ts. Don't do all those simultaneously. Here's the, here's the fifth one. This is a do. Do, affirm, occur, encourage all the people that you see. Be a cheerleader. Be an encourager. Be an infer, uh, affirmer. All right, so that's your assignment. How many of y'all think you could do any of those well, like singularly? Man, ain't nobody got their hand up, right? I, I think this would be a great exercise for us to try out on Thanksgiving Day because there's going to be some people in your family that are going to be contentious, that think completely diff- differently than you, that voted politically different than you, and there's going to be opportunities for you to get into some great discussions. And get in those discussions, but test yourself by seeing how you do with your tongue. 
So that, that really actually had nothing to do with, uh, with the direction James is going, but I thought it was a good exercise for you in that it's, uh, it's Thanksgiving week. Here's what James is doing. James, you know, he's been very practical in this, in this letter that he's writing. He's trying to get people to, be, to have an active faith, to live what they believe, and he gives us lots of examples. And in this particular text in chapter 3, he gives us three more illustrations or three more examples, three pairs of illustrations to show us the power of our tongue. Because what? Our tongue is connected to our heart, which is connected to our character, which testifies to our faith. That's just, that's just a big point. And here's the first thing that he says. Our tongue has the power to direct. Uh, verse 3. Your tongue has the power to direct. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we got their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. Um, again, James is giving, I mean, this is, this is like poetry. This is wisdom literature of the New Testament. And, uh, you know, this is, this is nice prose because James is, is saying some, some very hard words. And he really does have a bat in his hand. And he's going to hit us over the head in regards to how many of us use our tongues. James is reiterating it and over and over in, this, in these particular verses how powerful our words are. And he is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Proverbs 18, 21 says, Death and life are in the power of of our tongues, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And so here's what I think he's saying. Our words either give life or take it. They nourish or destroy. They help or they're going to hurt. Our words have the power to direct. And the imagery that he uses is a bit that you would put in a horse's mouth or the rudder in the, in the stern of a ship that's directing its, its course. Um, those would have been common terms in James' day. I think if if one of us were writing this letter to the people that we knew trying to encourage them in their faith, we would have used the example like a steering wheel in a car, that, that small steering wheel that you put in your hands that's going to direct wherever the car goes uh, with the slightest turn. But here's his point. He's talking about the power and the influence of such a small tool um, with such a, uh, a big instrument, the, the, the largeness of, of a horse or the the monstrosity of, of a huge ship that's controlled by such a small device. And he says, our tongues are just like that. Our tongues direct our lives, much like those small devices direct either a rider directing a horse with a bit or uh, a, a sailor um, turning some small whatever he turns to, to make the rudder work. One commentator says this, what we do follows what we say. Think about that for a second. What I do follows what I say. Now, some of you are, that are smart are going to push back a little bit. Um, there's an implication that, um, I mean, you don't, you don't actually do everything that you think or, or say. But here's, here's the pattern in our, in our, in our heads. We, we think something. We have a thought. And, and really, your thoughts are, your thoughts are spoken words. Um, if you actually follow through and say the thing that you're thinking, like, I think I want some ice cream. If I think that and then I say it out loud, what's going to happen? I'm going to be thinking about ice cream all throughout the rest of my sermon. Eggnog ice cream. Mm. I want some right now, right? And so I've thought it, I've said it, 
What's going to happen? I'm going to think about it more. As soon as I get home from, from church today, I'm going to have me some eggnog ice cream. What you do is, is prefaced by what you say. That's what he means. So, I mean, there's a, there's, there's really, um, uh, there's going to be uh, what it does and what it doesn't mean. Uh, so let me, I'll trick like that. I'm not saying that right, but follow me. Both our internal speech, our thoughts, and our spoken word direct our actions. That does not mean that you actually do follow through and do everything you say. We all have a little bit of self-control over ourselves that everything that we think and actually some of the things that we say, we don't have the wherewithal to go ahead and actually do it. But the testimony of the Bible is this. It's not necessarily our thoughts, the things that we say that ends up directing our lives. It's something much, much more inside of us. It's our hearts. You realize that? The things that you think and the things that you do actually comes from your heart. Jesus says it like this. A tree is recognized by its fruit. How do we recognize an apple tree? Because it has apples on it. It's the fruit that the the tree produces. He goes on to say, for out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. I think James is agreeing with his big brother Jesus that there's a direct correlation from how we live and what we say. Our tongue is tied to our heart. In fact, although you can't see your heart, your heart is leading you, and sometimes it leads you through your mouth and those words that you say. Your heart moves your tongue. As you talk, you reveal things about you, and the more you speak, the more you're revealing what's actually going on. For those of you that have been to a professional counselor, have had a counseling session with a pastor, or have confided yourself in someone professionally, you ever notice we go to a counselor and we want that counselor just to, you, we want that person to fix me. I mean, fix me. I don't want to talk. I just want you to fix me, fix whatever's going on. I'll tell you a little bit, but discern all that's going on in me and fix it. What does the counselor do? He has you talk. Why? Because at some point, what you say is going to actually reveal the things going on on the inside of you. And if you don't do that, he or she's not going to be able to discern exactly what that is. So our our tongue has the power to direct. It also has the power to destroy. Verse 5, how great a force is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For if every beast, uh, for every, every kind of beast and bird and uh, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Um, so James uh, changes his metaphor from, um, from, the, uh, from the, the rudder and the bit, and he goes on to fire and animals. And he's, he's saying the tongue can be an enormous evil. Oftentimes when we, don't, when, we, when we are most unintending, our tongues can just get us into trouble. Think of a, a group of young people that decided to go camping. They're out in the woods. They make a fire. They're having fun. And they sort of finish their camping trip. They douse the fire out, but not completely. Little do they know, after they've left, uh, one of the embers is still lit a little bit, and an unsuspected wind kind of blows up. It, it fans the flame, and those embers sort of spray into some nearby leaves. Those leaves catch fire, and, and before you know it, the, the whole wood line is like ablaze. 
and it ends up destroying the, you know, a, a forest worth of, of trees and vegetation. Um, that really is what he's saying the tongue is like. Suspect, I mean, purposely or un, unpurposely, um, it can bring massive destruction. But James doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6. I won't read it again, but I mean, these are all negative traits. I mean, he's saying some bad things about us and, and our speech, about our words. Uh, he's helping us to see that our, our tongues aren't necessarily the most evil part of our body, but whenever all of us are up to no good, our tongue is involved. Very, I mean, most, in most cases. Whenever um, you're going to purposefully or, I mean, not even intendingly, do something and it involves uh, your, your, the whole you, uh, your mouth is going to get you in trouble more than likely uh, than not. A lot of times when we speak, our words set the course of our lives. Again, think of, think of the pattern. I think something. Um, I say it out loud. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot now that I've thought it and said it. And a lot of times it leads me into action. In verse 7 and 8, I won't read those again, James feels the need to explain what he just says. And so he adds to his picture um, the introduction of, of animals. Any of y'all been to the zoo lately? Anybody? Raise your hand. How about an aquarium? The circus. All right. Who here has a pet? Y'all are animal people. All right. So we got, we got a few more people that, got, that have pets. Um, think about all the animals in the world that, that over the course of our existence on the planet, um, human beings have been able to tame. I'm not just talking about like the, the cute little monkeys that have human-like qualities. I'm talking about the beast of the, you know, of the field. I would include horses. I mean, horses aren't necessarily tame animals. Um, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! You know those? I mean, those, I mean, you go to the circus and you see elephants. Well, you used to see elephants. Now they're they're not there anymore. But we see these beasts that uh, you wouldn't think that we could tame them. Um, but really, it's it's really uh, the fru- the the fruition of Genesis uh, chapter chapter one and two where God said that man would be able to subdue all those things uh, as he has dominion over the earth. And, uh, and primarily, I mean, the, the, the great way that um, God has given us to tame animals are with our words. Of course, now, mostly, we, we, we domesticate them. We get them when they're young and sort of keep them in a, 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 a semi-docile environment. But it's with our words that we are able to tame these great beasts. Here's James' point. We can tame these great animals, yet no one, James says, is able to tame the tongue. He says it's like an impossible task. Well, I mean, kind of. It seems impossible. I think there's two options. There are two options. Here's the first option. After uh, you hear a sermon like this or you in your devotions, you read James chapter 3, and he's like beating you up, sucker punching you about, uh, about your tongue, and then you feel guilted after, after you've read it. And what do you do? You double down on yourself. I'm going to like, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to just shut my mouth up. I'm going to control everything I say. And you basically treat your tongue like a light switch. Um, you're going to control it so that it would in turn control your body so that you don't violate what God has said. And psychologists would tell you, counselors would tell you, that's just behavior modification. There's a couple things about behavior modification. Uh, of course, parents, y'all are doing it all the time, right? You just want, I just want you, Johnny, to behave when we go in Walmart, all right? Don't yell out. Don't grab anything. Don't put anything in the basket that you're not supposed to. 
We want our kids to behave right at certain points, right? Especially when we're going over somebody else's house. So behavior modification isn't bad. It just doesn't work all the time. And at some point, what's in you is going to come out. But here's the second thing. And, and this is a problem. It would be great if our tongues were actually the master switch to our lives, but they're not. I mean, you just can't, like, turn your tongue off like it's a light switch. Why? Because who you are is tied to your heart. Your heart is the master switch to your life. And, and you, I mean, it's not like once upon a time where you got the evil queen going in and reaching in and taking your heart out and, like, man, what do you call it? manipulating it. You can't do that. And, and, and that's why we need option two. Most of us revert to option one, but there is an option two. And option two is simply this. It's to cry for help. We need help. If we are to tame our tongues, we have to turn to someone else for help. And that's the note that James ends on in his third, uh, third illustration. And so our tongues have the power to direct. Our tongues have the power to destroy. Our tongues have the power to delight. And he introduces the illustration of a tree and a spring. Verse 9. With it we bless, with it our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with our tongues we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So in this third illustration, James is reminding us of how hopefully inconsistent our tongues are. He's saying with, with one breath, I'm, like, I'm, I'm going to inhale and I'm going to bless God. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, praise his holy name. We're going to pronounce the service, give the benediction, everybody's going to leave, and I'm going to exhale and I'm going to cuss out you know, the, everybody in the car on the way home because they're being unruly. I mean, that's what we do, right? I mean, it's, it's just in us to do it. And James is like, he, he's not holding any punches back. He's like, that's not right. In fact, he says it's absurd. And that's when we say, ouch, he's stepping on our toes again. And it's, it, it's absurd for, really, for two reasons. Firstly, it's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. He's saying it's schizophrenic for us to look up and glory in the God who created the earth and glorify God for all his greatness and who he is. And yet look at the same people, look at the people who God has created in the world around us and defame them, demean them, criticize them. Why? Because they are image bearers of the very God that we're glorifying. It's a worship issue. But then he says it's an inconsistency issue. There's an, an issue of consistency in that he's, he's telling us God is more consistent than, than that. He, he shows us a picture of a spring and uh, a tree, a fig tree. I don't know anything about springs. Actually, I, uh, many years ago, it's like 2002, I got uh, with the military, I got to go to um, one of the the, the greatly preserved hot springs in our world in Bath, England. Beautiful site, and it actually is a hot spring. It's pretty neat. You should look it up. Um, but Wikipedia tells me everything I need to know about springs, right? And, and it's on the, on the internet, so it's got to be right. Uh, Wikipedia says 
Springs are consistent. That's James' point. Okay, and so whether you got a hot spring, uh, a fresh water spring, a mineral spring, a cold water spring, they're going to be consistent. So the same type of water is going to pour out. It's usually going to be at the same temperature um, all year long because it's coming from the same source. Springs are consistent. The same thing James is giving us in, the, in terms of the picture of, of a tree. Particularly, he says, olive trees and, and fig trees. I mean, what, say it out loud. What does an olive tree produce? Right. All right. You guys are good. What does a fig tree produce? There is no tree on the earth that this year is going to produce olives or figs and then next year produce apples, and then the next year produce peaches. If you find a tree like that, run, because that tree is, is abnormal. And here's the thing. This is God, James is saying God is consistent. He has made the world and vegetation such that uh, it's true to its source. That's how God has set the, the world in order. He's organized it so that the things he created will produce according to their kind. And that's, that's his main message here. And so, you know, we talk, we're talking a lot about the, the tongue, about, you know, the things that we say with our tongue and what the tongue can do. But this is a message about the heart. This, this is James telling us about our hearts. He's, he's used a, you know, a, a, a member of our body that's, that's an external member and one that we can't do without or do the things he requires us to do without, but really, James has gone on the inside, and he's telling us about our heart. The words produced by our tongue reflect their source. Our words originate from our hearts. And here's his message. Words are powerful. They can be helpful, but they can also be painful. Words can change lives. Some of you here have been... I mean, greatly, gravely affected by the words spoken to you. Perhaps you've been affected by a positive word. And so maybe some, some affirmation or encouragement or some good things that you heard repeatedly as you grew up gave you confidence in yourself and it's made you who you are, doing whatever you do now. But some of you have not lived lives like that. You have lived lives um, with really negative words ringing over and over in your ears. You're a dumb job. You're amount to no good. You're stupid. I mean, think about all the, the things that people say to us that some of them stick. There's another subset of you. Some of you, it's not the words people have said to you. It's, it's the silence. There are all kinds of words that you wanted to hear, but you had no one in your life that, that either had the capacity to say them or they were too busy, or it just didn't happen. Like, you're doing a good job. I, I love you. I, I really care about you. You're going to be great one day. And you long to hear those words, but you never heard them. And before you know it, if you're a person that's wanting to hear those things, or if you're a person that's on the, um, the receiving end of very negative words, you, I mean, Satan uses that to turn you into a negative, critical, cynical, judgmental, condemning person. And before you know it, you have become the, the, the bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder on a ship, and you're directing the course not only of your own life, but you're directing the course of other people by your words 
that will be affected, I mean, in the same way that you were. It's, it's like this repetitive thing. This is how this stuff happens. My life has been greatly changed by words. My elementary years, I, got, I, I, I didn't get a whole bunch, but I got some negative words. And those negative words, and that's stuff from my parents. My parents were more of the silent type. But I had some negative words spoken about me that, that formed my identity all the way through high school. And I, I would be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm like trying to get out of some of those negative words even now as a 51-year-old man. And perhaps some of you are the same. But it, it wasn't the negative words that shaped me pro, uh, primarily in my life. It's the positive words. In sixth grade, uh, my, 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 my sixth grade teacher was Mrs. Tyson. And Mrs. Tyson, um, she knew that I, academically I was, I was a little gifted, but she saw me trying to be popular. She, try, she saw me trying to be social. And she pulled me aside one day and said, you're not doing enough. You're not meeting your potential. There's more to you than, what you're, than the way you're performing. And so do more. So she had a stern word for me, but it's what I needed at that moment to really turn the course of my life so that I would not, I mean, so that I wasn't trying to form my identity by trying to be social, hanging out with the right people or the, who I thought were the right people, and I was like, you know, in it, in it to win it academically. And then um, I remember I was a young captain three years into the Army. I met Captain Sheffer, Pete Sheffer. Uh, I did a nine-month uh, TDY at West Point, and uh, I was planning on getting out of the Army because, I mean, the Army had scarred me as a young lieutenant. Uh, I worked for just a bad boss, and I was going to get out. But Pete Shefford gave me some great advice. He used his words to influence me about the Army. He's like, hey, don't, base the, don't judge the Army on one experience, one leader, one post. Um, give it another try. Because everywhere you go, every leader, every unit, even every year, when you change jobs, you're going to experience something different. Don't base your army career on chasing badges and tabs. Go to the places you've always wanted to go. Put your family first. I mean, he, he said the right things to me that changed my whole perspective of the army. I went to Korea after that. Why? Because Captain Shepherd gave me permission to do the thing that I thought I was supposed to do. I went to Korea. Had, I mean, had the best assignment in my army life, and the army changed for me because I, I listened to him, I listened to his words. And then uh, around 2006, 2007, uh, a pastor of mine, Pastor Michael Fletcher in North Carolina, saw more, I mean, it wasn't really his words, it was how he, it was just all of who he was and how he acted in regards to me. He saw more in me than I saw in myself, and he sent me an email. Hey, Jeff, I see vocational ministry in you, and if there's ever, if you're ever thinking about getting out of the military, I would love to have you on my staff. It was the right words at the right time. Words are important. Words are powerful. James is talking to us about our tongues, about our words, and he says this, no one can tame the tongue. But he's more so talking to us about our hearts. And, and here's the thing, I, I, don't, I don't like James about this. James doesn't resolve everything he says. In fact, he won't, I mean, he's not going to give us, here's three steps to taming your tongue. He's not going to do that. Uh, the closest he comes to it, in chapter 4, he's going he's gonna to give us some advice about the grace of God coming into our lives and, and steering us. But here are the implications that I think are coming from this chapter in James for us. While most of us are woefully inconsistent and can't control our tongues, there is someone that can. God can. 
And this is how God helps us control our tongues. The first thing you need to do is acknowledge the failures of your own speech and ultimately reflect on the failures in your own hearts. God is calling you to do that. Acknowledge your failure. Present those to God. We can ask Jesus to forgive us of all the ways that we fail. We can receive his mercy. And this is what James is going to tell us in chapter 4. We'll get there in a month. We're going to take a break for Advent. We can ask for more grace. And that's what you should do. If you have like this light, this sharp, direct tongue, that's what James is asking you to do. That's what he's telling you to do. Acknowledge your failure. Repent. Confess your sin. Ask him to forgive you. Receive his mercy. Ask for more grace. Here's the last point, And this is probably the I mean, this is why I made the last point. The tongue has the power to delight. This is what James is saying to us. God intends for us to use our tongues to worship. Look at verse 9 one more time, just the first part of it. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. James is saying, there's, there's, it's a given. You can't do two things at the same time. You can't bless the Lord and curse your, curse your neighbor. It's hard to do. All right, you have to be double tongue, double mouth to be able to do that. And that, that is the purpose of your life. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it, it would say that the, the sole purpose of your life is that you would worship God and enjoy him forever. And that's what we should be doing with our lives. The more we worship God and show gratitude towards him with our mouths, the, the less we'll have room in our hearts to be negative and cynical and to complain and bicker and to gossip and be slanderous. It's, it's not possible for you to praise God and curse people at the same time. And so the more we worship God, the less we're going to do all those negative things that James talks about here. I like what the psalmist says. He says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. We sang the song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, by Matt Redman. And that's what James was encouraging us to do. He's like, if you do this, if you worship, if you bless the Lord with your mouth, you're going to be less susceptible to do the other things that you could potentially do with your mouth. And that, I mean, that's our opportunity, especially this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Let's do what the scripture says. Let's use our voices to sing to God, to bless God, to be thankful. And for some of you, I mean, this is a military crowd. It's partially military. And some of you are stifled in your emotions and your ability to express that. I would, I would confess to you, I am too. But the text is telling us that the more you bless the Lord, like out loud, with your words, the more you're going to, the less you're going to use negative talk that could violate everything James is saying here. So that's my challenge for you. Let's respond. Let's respond to God in worship. Let's let our hearts be before God. Let's surrender our hearts before God so that our tongues will be controlled before people because that's what James is encouraging us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of words. I mean, even the fact that we are humans communicating with our words um, is a miracle, but it's what you intended. It's how you created us. And so we, we just cry out for help. Help us in all those ways that we are out of control and say the things that, that's, that are in our hearts to, to say, those negative things. God, we confess we need, we need new hearts. We don't need new tongues. We need new hearts. We don't need behavior modification. We need you to modify our hearts. And the only way you can do that is when we 
surrender ourselves to your spirit. So would you do it? Would you begin this week, especially as we meet with family and friends over Thanksgiving? I pray just the grace of God over our congregation as they fellowship with those that they love and invite friends, but hopefully even some strangers into their homes to convene over a meal and remember the goodness of God. We say thank you. Thank you for wise speech, for words that bless that come out of our mouths. Thank you for your grace when we get it wrong. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.